Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Bortz, Curator of Fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, Education Programs Manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Megan. Hi, Matt. On this episode of iiPod, we are going to be talking with a scientist who has worked quite a bit with us at the Duke Lemur Center, and we're especially excited to talk with her today about her work with our ring-tailed lemurs and the much tinier organisms living inside those ring-tailed lemurs. My name is Sally Bornbush, and I am a researcher who studies animal microbiomes. Sally's work has taken her all over the world, as well as to the Lemur Center. She's also worked with a number of zoos. I am currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Smithsonian National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. Sally's journey began with watching her parents and their work. Both my parents are biologists. I kind of knew I wanted to do research, so it was almost preordained. For as long as I can remember, I was really fascinated by animals. I considered being a vet for a long time, but decided that that wasn't quite the right road for me. And so I really knew I wanted to work with animals somehow in some way, and particularly kind of try and make their lives better. So how did you get interested in these tiny creatures that live in and on all of us? I was never particularly interested in microbiology or or microbes in general. In fact, it was one of my least favorite classes in college. And yet somehow I managed to kind of keep that horizon open and ended up figuring out that by studying microbes, it was a way into studying animals that was really valuable for understanding them and also helping them and conserving them. So I took something that I wasn't necessarily too jazzed about and combined it with something that I had always known I wanted to do. And it ended up being the perfect match of subject matter for me. My first research was on coral reef shrimp in Belize. And I did that when I was an undergraduate and I was really interested in marine ecology at the time. Knowing she wanted to be a researcher, and after getting her undergraduate degree from William & Mary, Sally came to Duke University, the home of the Lemur Center, to work on her PhD. But I arrived thinking that I was going to be studying cognition and aging in mouse lemurs. In her second year at Duke, Sally began to learn about microbiomes from another grad student. She was fascinated. Like so many researchers, finding all these unanswered questions took her down a completely different path than she expected. While some scientists specialize from the beginning— Sally says that keeping an open mind eventually led to her true life's work, using scientific research to help protect animals, especially those that are endangered. So what I end up doing now, which I absolutely love and am completely invested in, is something that I've actually only been really focused on for the last six or seven years. Prior to that, I didn't even know what a microbiome was. Right. So what exactly is a microbiome? microbiomes are the trillions of microorganisms, bacteria, fungi that live on and inside humans and animals. Um, And my research is focused on understanding these microbiomes and how they can be integrated into how we care for and conserve endangered animals, including lemurs. Once she started understanding microbiomes, Sally started finding out about how much we didn't know about them. Because what ends up really driving scientists, I think, are questions, not necessarily specific fields. But if there's a question we have that we really want answered, like we really want to answer this question, what is the best place for us to do that? Or we really want to have an impact. Like for me, it's conservation. I want to care and conserve endangered species. What is the best way that I can do that? Is it in biology? Is it through microbiomes? Is it in the field? Is it in the lab? 
Sally had zeroed in on what would be her own big question to investigate in her work. How do microbes help animals survive in their environment? We know that animals live in a multitude of environments, but specifically for me, it's how can microbes help an animal survive under human care versus in the wild? And if we have endangered species under human care and they're incredibly valuable, how can we make sure that their microbiome is best serving the animal in order for that animal to survive and thrive under human care? If with the ultimate goal, hopefully one day, of actually taking that animal and reintroducing it into the wild. Can we help the microbiome help the animal? And my research is 100% focused on using microbiome science to improve animal care and conservation, both here at the zoo, um, but as well as in situations where animals might be reintroduced out in the wild. So for me, it's very question-driven. How can we use microbiome science in these fields? Um, and I work on a wide variety of animals. I'm very lucky. I work with lemurs. I still work at the lemur center. I still do research there. But now I'm also working with sloths, cheetahs, black-footed ferrets, golden lion tamarins. In working with all these different species, Sally is exploring questions that have actually picked up steam not only among other scientists, but with the broader public as well. The number of searches for the word microbiome in Google over the last like 10 years, and it's like, whoop, and it's just like this exponential increase. And that is not just the science about it, but people being interested in it, knowledge about it. It is skyrocketing and it is not stopping anytime soon. It is a really amazing field to be in because there is so much we don't know and there's so much more that we can learn. Knowing that there is so much to explore, scientists like Sally have to start with questions like, what is a healthy microbiome? And then what is the relationship between a healthy microbiome and a healthy, happy animal, like the whole thing, not just its gut? Or what is the difference between a lemur's gut in the spiny forest of Madagascar and the gut of a lemur roaming around in Duke Forest in North Carolina? It is one of the ultimate questions that we have about microbiomes is what is a healthy microbiome? What does a healthy microbiome look like and how can we almost optimize a microbiome to best serve the animal host? The answer is we don't know. And it varies drastically between species, between individuals, between populations. And so one of the things I found with my research that I really thought was interesting and kind of thought provoking in terms of understanding microbiomes is that even among wild lemurs, there was not one microbiome structure that all wild lemurs looked like. Even within one population of wild lemurs at one site, they looked different. And then between sites, they were different. And then between areas in Madagascar, they were different. Whether that means that one is better than the other, I cannot say. But what I suspect, and this is particularly important when looking at wild versus captive, is that these animals have adapted to their environment and their microbiomes have adapted as well. The lemurs at the lemur center have been there for generations. These are mostly not animals who were born in the wild. And so whether a microbiome in a lemur in North Carolina is more healthy than one in Madagascar is not necessarily the question we want to ask. What we're interested in is, is that microbiome of a lemur in North Carolina the best it can be for that lemur in that environment? And same with the microbiome in the wild lemurs. We don't necessarily want them to look like each other because they don't live in the same environment. They don't need the same things. But we do want to make sure that in any of those environments, can we make sure that that microbiome is best serving its animal host in a way that we think is beneficial to that animal? 
Sally used ringtailed lemurs, including those at the lemur center, to look into this question. The ringtailed lemur was, in a lot of ways, a great animal to use because it's known to be adaptable, living successfully in diverse environments in Madagascar. And so, in one of her largest projects, Sally took a look. Because they're so adaptable, because they can live in all these different environments, how do their microbiomes differ between all these different environments? And if they do differ, is that a signal of the environment that they're living in? Has the microbiome maybe helped the animals adapt to those specific environments? And so one of the largest projects that I worked on both at the Lemur Center and in Madagascar and at other zoos here on the East Coast of the U.S., was looking at the gut microbiomes of 209 ring-tailed lemurs that lived in all of these different habitats, including dry forests in Madagascar, wet forests, riverine forests, spiny forests, um, but also looking at animals that lived, for example, at the Duke Lemur Center and at other zoos on the East Coast, and then also lemurs that lived under human care in Madagascar. So trying to figure out if their microbiomes differ and punchline is that they did differ. They differed pretty drastically between all of these different populations. And there were signals of how the microbiome was actually helping these animals live in these specific environments, such as digesting specific foods or sharing microbes with their their group mates. There can be challenges to balancing a healthy microbiome with overall health, especially when it becomes necessary to use antibiotics. Sally did microbiome and antibiotic research at the Duke Lemur Center. So we all know that antibiotics are invaluable to both human and animal care. They're a huge component of modern medicine. Um, They've saved countless lives, both human and animal. We cannot currently remove them from our standard of care for humans or animals. That being said, we now know that antibiotics can also cause pretty severe disruption to the microbiomes of humans and animals. And that can lead to secondary side effects. It can even lead to other diseases. So say an animal is treated with antibiotics. If those antibiotics react in a bad way or wipe out too many of the good bacteria in that animal's microbiome, that animal could actually get sicker instead of getting better. So one of the things that I was particularly interested in was figuring out if animals like lemurs need to be treated with antibiotics What happens to their microbiomes? And is there a way that we can actually make sure that they do not get sicker afterwards and kind of mitigate any side effects that they may have from antibiotic treatment? So we looked at how lemur microbiomes reacted to kind of a standard course of antibiotics, but then we also gave some of them fecal transplants after the antibiotic. Fecal transplants, which we're going to get into more in a moment, are literally using an animal's fecal matter, yep, we're talking about poop, as a sort of nutritional supplement that can help encourage a better microbiome and better gut health. Um, And in short, we found that the answer is yes. Uh, Fecal transplants do help the lemurs recover their microbiome faster after antibiotic treatment. And antibiotic treatment alone actually did have a pretty strong and long-term influence on the lemur's microbiome. So one of the things that we're hoping to propose from this research is that we consider using either fecal transplant or a probiotic afterwards to help that animal recover as part of a general management and health care of lemurs. And my current research is looking at how that works in other animals. Research facilities like the Duke Lemur Center and many zoos enable scientists like Sally to pursue these questions. It is such a dream to work at the Lemur Center. It is really wonderful. The staff are incredibly accommodating to researchers, especially because we are half the time in their way 
And we are always trying to be accommodating to all aspects of the lemur center with the idea that animals are always the top priority. Such a wonderful component of working at the lemur center is that interaction between research, education, and conservation. For researcher, I imagine one of the other reasons to come to the lemur center is because there are so many lemurs at one site. It is the largest population outside of Madagascar. To do the kind of research that you do, you really need a good size group to collect data from, right? In terms of sample sizes, you're not going to get any better if you want to work with lemurs under human care. Even though sample size is limited, it's still great. <laughs> um, and it is, it's a facility where you can work with you know, 15 to 20 animals of the same species, whereas in a lot of places you might have three or two. So which of the species at the lemur center have you worked with? And of course, we have to ask, which is your favorite? So I've been privileged to work with actually most of the lemurs at the lemur center, I would say. So one of the first projects I worked on at the lemur center was looking at the microbiomes of most of the nocturnal animals at the lemur center and looking at how they differed between species. So we worked with the eye eyes, the mouse lemurs, the dwarf lemurs, um, the lorises that we had at the time. Um, and that was a really fun experience because it is, it's an, it's a whole nother thing to wait for an animal to poop in the dark. Um, <laughs> that's not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> and so it was definitely different than working with animals that are diurnal where you can see them during the day. I've also been able to work with some of the cockerel shifox, which I'm working on now. Um, but the animal that I work most with at the lemur center was the ring-tailed lemur, who will always have my heart in terms of favorite lemurs. They're definitely a big favorite for most people, or at least the image folks picture when they hear the word lemur. So why do you think that is? Personally, I think there's two sides to this. The first being that they are the lemur that people see in zoos. And so when you hear the word lemur, if you have ever been to a zoo, odds are you've seen a ring-tailed lemur. So that's the first thing that pops into your head if someone says a lemur. And that's only because that's the lemur that people see. Uh, most pe- the vast majority of people are never going to be able to go to Madagascar. And so their one experience with lemurs is a ring-tailed lemur at the zoo, because that is the lemur that's there. The second part of this is media. So I think there's a lot of past media that focuses on ring-tailed lemurs. Everyone's heard of King Julian from the Madagascar movies at this point. And that focus on the ring-tailed lemur has also broadened just like acknowledgement of that lemur and that it has kind of become the epitome for lemurs. That being said, you know, the the logo for Madagascar National Parks is a ring-tailed lemur. So it is not just, you know, a Western thought about what is the lemur that represents Madagascar, but it is also something that is deeply held in Madagascar as well. And so I think there's a lot of focus on ring-tailed lemurs, not only because you see them, but also because they are an important species. They are a flagship species. They are very important in Madagascar. One of the other things that people have been fascinated by with ring-tailed lemurs for the longest time is that they are female dominant and very much so. So not only do they live in large groups and they're on the ground, but the females are the bosses. And I think from a research perspective, that has led a lot of scientists to research ring-tailed lemurs for decades in the past. So they were very well researched as well. And from a social perspective, it's just fun to see girls be bosses. So how do you approach looking at these tiny organisms that are literally inside of all of these animals? So how do you look at gut microbiomes? This is a very interesting question and people ask me it a lot. So I always tell them what goes in must come out. 
And so what lives in your gut in terms of microbes does come out, but it does so in poop, in feces. So if you want to study what's in the gut of an animal, but you can't see it, you can't access it, the best way to study that is to study that animal's poop. And so for gut microbiomes, we collect poop and we analyze the microbes that are in the poop, which then tell us what was in the gut. And this gets exactly into what you study, right? By looking at the poop, you can find out all kinds of things about an animal. Poop science should be its own field of science. It's pretty incredible all the things you can learn from poop. So we talked about how we can analyze the microbes in poop, but you can also analyze cells in poop from the actual animal itself. So say you found poop in a jungle and you weren't sure what animal defecated that poop and you were really hoping that it was a clouded leopard. Um, you could actually take that poop and analyze the host cells that have come out with the poop and figure out if that poop came from a clouded leopard. And that's one way that you can get estimates of population sizes of animals, even if you never see the animal. There's also things like you can look at hormone levels. So if you were really interested in trying to figure out whether an animal in under human care is in breeding season or is ready to reproduce, you can use fecal samples to look at their hormone levels and know that that animal is or is not ready for breeding season. You could also use fecal samples to determine what an animal is eating. You can actually use genetics uh, to identify the material in the poop that came from the diet. So you can identify different plants. You can identify if the animal ate another animal. You can also do nutrient analysis and specifically figure out what nutrients this animal is intaking from their diet and whether that matches what they should be getting and what they should be absorbing in the gut. So poop can tell us about the entire ecosystem of any animal. It can even tell us about ourselves as we're carrying this around with us. I mean, every animal really is an ecosystem unto ourselves when you get down to it. What's fascinating about this area of research is finding out how much we don't know. After all, we've been looking at or avoiding scat or poop for a very long time. Okay, so Sally, one of the things that you've been digging into is how to help an animal's gut by giving them back some of that material that's derived directly from their poop. You've done some research on fecal transplants. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit more about what that's all about? Fecal transplants have actually been around both in human and animal medicine for thousands of years. We just didn't necessarily know why they were being used up until more recently. But there's been hundreds of years of anecdotal and folk knowledge about how feces can be beneficial. And only in the past couple hundred years have we realized that microbes might be the reason why these things worked for so long. Caveat to that is that feces has a lot of bacteria that you also might not want to eat or to have on your skin. And so this is not something that should be done willy-nilly, and it is a process and a treatment. It is a medical treatment that is used both in animals and in humans, but with scientists like myself who are doing screening to make sure that we are not transplanting anything bad as well. Luckily, in administering this treatment, most lemurs are a bit coprophagic, which means that they will occasionally eat poop on their own. This is true for other species like rodents and dogs, and being coprophagic makes the job of administering fecal transplants a lot easier when it comes to lemurs. There's multiple ways that fecal transplants can be administered or prepared. At the lemur center, the most common way is poop soup. This is taking feces and turning it into a fecal slurry that is then fed to the animals and don't worry, most lemurs are coprophagic, so they actually don't mind very much, it seems. Other ways are creating poop pills, dried up and ground feces, and actually put it in a gel capsule and feed it to animals. 
And these are all different ways that you can actually get healthy beneficial microbes into an animal. And then the next step, when you want to help an animal's gut health, then it could be a fecal transplant? Yes. So fecal transplants are what I consider the ultimate probiotic. So most people know what a probiotic is these days. You walk into any CVS, any drugstore, and you walk down the aisle and there's a whole shelf of probiotics. And they talk about all the different microbes, the beneficial microbes that are in the probiotics that can help your gut health, help your overall health, and all of this. What a fecal transplant is, is essentially taking that up and ramping it up to the point where you are transplanting an entire microbiome, an entire community of microbes, instead of just using a pill with a couple different microbes in it. What is it about ringtail lemurs that makes them particularly good for this research and possibly for this treatment? They are incredibly adaptable. They are omnivores, which means that they eat anything. And I mean anything. They will eat dirt, bark, dead pine needles, birds, insects, all kinds of things, along with their normal leaves and flowers and and produce and things like that. They are social animals, and so they can be housed together in larger groups. So if animals are living in the same place, eating pretty much the same food, don't we just expect them to share the same microbiome? There are so many factors that influence the microbiome. Diet is one of them, evolutionary history, feeding strategy, but also actually your environment. Are you free ranging or are you Mm -hmm. indoors? Have you had antibiotic treatment lately? Are you genetically closely related to your group mates? Like, are you mother and triplets? Are you brothers and sisters, mother and father? All of this. The evolutionary history of the animal. So the phylogeny, what other animals it's related to, its ecology versus its diet. And so you can think about diet as what it's eating on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, my diet today was a salad and some rice and an apple. But my feeding strategy is slightly different. My feeding strategy as a human is an omnivore. And so those those two things are actually slightly different. The diet you're eating day-to-day versus your feeding strategy that you kind of evolved to, to eat. And whether your phylogeny or evolutionary history versus your feeding strategy versus your diet are influencing the microbiome, is a very complicated question because all of these things are intertwined and teasing them apart is very, very difficult. But I will say that if you took an II, a Shafak and a ring-tailed lemur and fed them all the same thing, their microbiomes would not look the same. They do have kind of these core microbiomes, these microbes that are specific to certain species. And these have perpetuated across lineages because microbiomes are also inherited in part from mom. So they're vertically inherited. So you do inherit microbes from generations previously. And diet will, in some ways, could homogenize parts of the microbiome. So if you fed a bunch of different animals the same diet, some of them might start to converge and look slightly similar, but they're always going to be slightly different. So back to ringtail lemurs. Because they're social, do they share their microbiomes? There is lots of evidence that that is definitely the case and that lemurs share microbes. They groom each other. They live in, they sleep in lemur balls. Um, and those are all mechanisms by which microbes can be kind of transferred between individuals. And that leads to these kind of group signatures of microbiomes that are specific to the animals living in one group. Um, that is a really, really interesting and ongoing area of research that I am not personally involved with but that I think is is absolutely fascinating. And I will just say that although it's not that common in the in the wild with ring-tailed lemurs, they are they do sometimes eat each other's poop, which is a very obvious way for them to share microbes with each other. 
Um, but that it doesn't happen all that often, but they also eat dirt. So they also pick up microbes from their environment all the time. So they're eating leaves with microbes on them. They're eating dirt, they're drinking water from nature. And so those are also all microbes that are coming in from the environment. We've talked a lot about probiotics and fecal transplants as ways to help lemur gut health. And I know nutrition and diet aren't necessarily subjects that you study, but what do you know about the relationship between microbiomes and diet? There's a lot of lemurs that we consider frugivorous. They eat fruit. So rough lemurs, frugivorous. Dwarf lemurs, kind of frugivorous. Um, And so unfortunately, one of the things that that has led to is as humans, we think of fruit, we think of apples and bananas and grapes and watermelons and all those delicious sugary fruits. But in Madagascar, most fruit-eating lemurs are eating fruits that are not high in sugar. I mean, these are wild fruits. They have high fiber, low sugar. But when they're living here in captivity, what we're giving them, what we think of as fruits, have high sugar and low fiber. So that, in those cases, we have identified kind of this, this mismatch between what they should be eating, truly what they've evolved to eat, and what they're necessarily being given in under human care. And in those cases, what we can do especially to help the microbiome, but also to help the overall health of the animal is sit down and say, okay, what in our capacity is a way that we can make the diet look more like a wild diet, but without trying to completely recreate a wild diet. And so one of the answers is, okay, instead of fruit, we do vegetables, you know, vegetables are higher fiber, lower sugar, and we can't recreate those wild fruits that they're eating in Madagascar. We can't import giant wild fig trees and stuff like that, it's not feasible. It's also not something that we think would grow very well in North Carolina. But taking that idea of the specific nutrients that an animal needs, because those nutrients are not just feeding the animal, they're also feeding the microbiome, which is in turn helping the animal. How can we recapitulate the diet the best we can in terms of its nutrient values? Not necessarily exactly what's in the diet, what the food item is, but what nutrients it has. So again, kind of adapting the situation, adapting the environment to best suit the animal and the microbiome as best we can in North Carolina. And speaking of North Carolina, you're currently conducting another research project with our ring-tailed lemurs right now, right? The project that I'm working on right now is actually taking advantage of a natural experiment at the lemur center where the animals free range for the warmer months, and then they move indoors for the winter months. So looking at how their microbiome might shift between those two seasons. And we have some goals to kind of sample across that season, but also do some manipulations relating to when they move indoors. And I will say what I will never plan to do ever again, because it is a nightmare, is form a scientific project that revolves around the weather. Mm -hmm. It is not particularly predictable. So the combination of unpredictable animals and unpredictable weather has made this particular project rather messy, the nice way to put it. (laughs) Um, You work with what you get and what you have. It's never perfect. It never goes 100% according to the plan, but that doesn't mean that the entire project is a wash or that, you know, you're not going to get valuable data out of what you have. Sally, always wonderful to catch up. And thank you so much for being a part of IIPod with us. Obviously, your research over the years has already benefited the Lemur Center, especially with the health of our lemurs. But what many people don't know is that you're also an incredibly talented and generous artist. And your work has been featured all over our fundraising auctions and in our gift shop. And we even used your design to create the IIPod logo. So we have to thank you even more for that. Well, thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and for all of your stories. Thank you, Sally. We really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sally. 
Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you, and goodbye for now. From Matt and Megan and all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center. <laughs>